And uh, we are going to get right after it today. Uh, you've already been told there are two books. Uh, just be honest, I've gone through parts of Disciplines of a Godly Woman, but being that I'm a man, I just felt kind of weird. But I will finish this book as well. Uh, this book, there are men in this church that have been through this book now like four and five times. The Disciplines of a Godly Man is an absolute classic. And these books are shaping this sermon series and even like sermon series within the sermon series because they're going to break into subgroups, which you'll understand in the weeks to come. But if you don't have that literature, it's 10 bucks. You can get it outside of the sanctuary. You can stop in throughout the week. I'm anticipating, I'm anticipating that we'll probably run out. If, we'll, if we do, we'll just order more. But uh, we want to see what happens when we're all honed in on the same idea and going through these concepts together as a church. And so, welcome. Uh, Easter was last week. Maybe you knew that. There was 1,470 of you in church at New Life in Aberdeen, and so that's pretty exciting. And then this week, there'll probably be a few less, because that's how that goes. But it, but it was really an eye-opener. I think that was our biggest Easter ever. Uh, as to how big the circle is at New Life. And so uh, I'm hoping that that'll be a catalyst for people coming back, people listening online, because there was a few hundred online as well, and that... God will give us this favor with people to speak into their lives on these core concepts that we feel are so important as a leadership team for us to all walk in together. And so get this literature in your hands. Um, The whole idea of this sermon series is that if nothing changes, then nothing changes. It really is kind of like part two to everything that we've been in with trauma. The difference would be very simple. The idea of the trauma series was if you don't deal with your past, whoa, I'm going through puberty. (laughs) Weird. Praise God. I've got a lot of years left. If you don't deal with your past, if you don't deal with your past, all right, stop laughing. I'm insecure. If you don't deal with your past, your past will deal with you. Okay, so that's where we've been, then Easter, and now where we're at is this, that uh, if nothing changes, nothing changes, And the idea of these next several weeks is, this is your past, this is what's wrong, but this is, I can promise you this as a therapist and as a pastor, this is what's going to change your future. We can't always get stuck in the past. And we can't always even just live primarily in the present. We have to have a vision, specifically men that are leading your homes. You have to have a vision for your future, a vision for your family, a vision for what it looks like to leave a legacy on not just Uh, being a Christian, but your last day of faith and what it looks like before you go to the Father and you meet Jesus face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have to have a vision for that last day and the disciplines of the faith are what lay the the groundwork for that last day, for that legacy. And so we've been in the past and now we're moving towards the future because the whole idea of 2022 at New Life is that we wanna grow spiritually. I love that there was 1,470 people with their butts and seats at New Life in Aberdeen. I love that there's probably 1,000 more that would call this place their home that show up every so often. But if there's no fruit that's produced and we're just filling seats, then we have a massive, massive problem at New Life. So we're going to walk in these things together. There have been many people that have already done that at this church. and It's bringing us all together for this series. But I have a personal confession I know this is going to shock a lot of you, but I figure I'd just say it once and then be done with it. Discipline is not my primary strength. So just like gasp, take that in. If you know me, you're going, really? That is so shocking. Um, it's, it's not my personal strength. 
And so some of these things I think I have a good handle on, like a lot of the topics of discipline are going to be on purity and marriage and parenting, friendship, integrity, prayer, devotion. And so some of these things, specifically like these big moral issues, I feel like I've got, a, you know, by the grace of God, a pretty good handle on. But other of these disciplines, like prayer life and consistent scripture reading, we're all kind of in different spots uh, depending on where we're at in life. And I'll just confess to you, I have been known to fly by the seat of my pants in ministry and pretty much every major area of my life, and I'm not saying that to make a joke about it. This is something that's speaking to me just like it's speaking to you. I mean, just one easy example. Uh, there was a guy I talked about a while back in church. His name's Jonathan, and he played football uh, in the NFL. And, and we started uh, kind of getting to know each other and uh, going to lunch and, and working out, and we played basketball together. And, and right now, we're doing this workout program together. By June 1st, we're supposed to lose 10 pounds. And uh, we've been texting each other. He said, how did it go? And I said, well, I gained a pound this week. I mean, that, that kind of is the narrative of my life. I don't mind exercise. I find it fun. It's how I socialize. But I really love to eat a lot of food. And so um, th- I don't know where you're at with this. Some of you are almost pharisaical in your discipline, while others of you are really the younger brother in the prodigal story. But no matter where you are, are what is unrefutable is that we need discipline in our life. And, and it really is something, even if you're not a Christian, you, you, you can't argue it. Disciplined people do well. Undisciplined people fail. And so what we're going to do today is this kind of this opener. We're going to answer a few core questions. But before we get there, I just want to throw this thought out that no one becomes accidentally disciplined in their life. It's always a result of intentionality. You will need to write some things down today. This is the umbrella that we're going to walk in for a while. No one becomes disciplined accidentally in their life. It's always a result of intentionality. I don't know of people that know this better than athletes. If you've ever been around an athlete that's a real athlete, a real athlete. Now, I know there's so many of them in Aberdeen, but real athletes, they have this different way of operating. We usually don't know them personally, but we know them by name. The book lists a few. There's a guy by the name of Mike Singletary. He was a linebacker for years in the NFL. He was known for hitting people hard. And so people would see him, and he was a beast on the field, and they would be almost underwhelmed by his physical stature and presence when they'd meet him in real life because they saw what he did on the football field but in real life, when you would meet him, he was six feet tall, 220 pounds. Not, not a bad, imposing presence, but when you think of a guy that's just an animal in the NFL, you don't think of six feet, 220. But the reason that he was so good, his greatness was defined by his discipline. He would often run a single play 50 to 60 times in practice to get it down perfectly. He said in a book, in an autobiography that he wrote, that he would take three hours to watch half of a football game for film because he broke down every play and every player. He knew the opposition players. He knew the tendencies. He knew the strategies. And by the time he got on the field, it was just second nature because he was more prepared than everyone else around him. So he knew where that person was going to be before he hit him. Michael Phelps spent thousands of hours in the pool, obviously a gifted athlete to start with, but thousands of hours in the pool, eight Olympic gold medals in the 2009 Olympics. Jack Nicholas said this. He said, it's so bizarre. He said, the more I practiced, the luckier I get. I thought that was clever. The more I practice, the luckier I get. 
I, I had a unique opportunity. I think it was uh, maybe four or five years ago. I took my boys to Minneapolis, and uh, it was a Timberwolves game. And it was one of those Timberwolves games, like probably a lot of Timberwolves games five years ago, where everyone had the other team's jerseys on. And it was Steph Curry. And so, you know, you could say Golden State Warriors, but really we all came to see the myth, the man, the legend, Steph Curry. And there were probably a couple of thousand people in the stands two hours when they first let you in before the game just to watch him work out. It was something like I have never seen, not, not just the excitement in the building, it was more exciting than the game itself. Everyone wanted to see what the secret sauce was for this guy. Why is he the best shooter that's ever lived on planet Earth? And how does he make it seem so effortless? And what I learned was he was methodical. He was methodical in how he warmed up. He was methodical in how he shot. He was how, methodical in how he dribbled. He was even methodical in how he stretched. And I'm just, I, I have... An obscene amount of footage on my phone on his warm-up. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but if you scroll through my phone, that's why I pay for higher data, right? I, I just have like an hour worth of Curry dribbling around and smiling and shooting, and it, it really is a sight to be seen. Uh, and he did all of this. This is what's so amazing. He did all of this to play the Timberwolves. And they stink, right? I mean, he's, it doesn't matter. It's like the worst team at that point in the league, one of the worst teams, and he's just methodical in his training. It doesn't matter if he's playing the Timberwolves or if he's playing the greatest franchise that ever existed, the Lakers. Um, he's just methodical in his training. Over and over and over again. I, I was able to go to another Timberwolves game. I know this is a long intro, but I, I promise you, I think it's worth it. I saw Kobe Bryant warm up. And I was screaming at Kobe. I got really close. I said, Kobe, Kobe, it's me. It's Rodney. And, uh, and he was like, I, I mean, that sounds funny. And obviously there's no way he would ever know who I was, even though I've been to like five times to see him play. He was, I just loved Kobe Bryant. He, he wouldn't even blink. He was so focused in on his warm-up routine. And that's kind of how that works. Da Vinci drew thousands of hands for one painting just to practice. And the author of Disciplines of a Godly Man said this, and maybe you want to write it down or maybe you just want to tuck it away. He said this. He said, the quantitative discipline of their work, he's talking about all these people, prepared the way for the cosmic qualitative value of their work. Churchill was the proclaimed speaker of the 20th century. And by no means in his speaking capacity was he known as a natural he wasn't the guy that could captivate the crowd with the heartwarming story, but he was tagged as the, the speaker of the 20th century. One of the most instrumental figures in the entire century in such a pivotal point in history, and he wasn't a natural. In fact, he had a lisp. And, and he was so methodical that he would learn on what motivated people in his public speaking. And so even his spontaneity, you guys have heard me say, like, oh, I didn't plan on saying that. Even his spontaneity was fake. He would make it seem like he was being spontaneous, but in his note, there would be, in his notes for his speeches, there would be like in parentheses, be spontaneous. Because that wasn't his gift, but because he was methodical and because he was disciplined, he was a great, great speaker. And so I tell you all of that now, get into the text, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There's going to be a few texts today with a few questions that we're going to answer. 
But I want you to see how this now bleeds over and from anything to spiritual life. Because a lack of intentionality will crush you in your faith. This is what Paul says. We talked about sports because Paul talks about sports. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. There's something comical to me about this text. I'll explain it in just a second. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He says, So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He says, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here's why this is kind of funny to me. I know enough about Paul by just reading and people watching for the last however many years and having people in my life, I can about promise you Paul was not an athlete. In fact, church history tells us he was a short, bald man with a unibrow, also known as the lady killer, right? I mean, so I don't know exactly what it looks like. There's really no way to prove that. But Paul's using this analogy. He's being a missionary to his culture, and he's speaking through the idea of the Greco-Roman world and athletics and Olympics and, and, and how much they cared about the wreath that they would get for the prize, the medal that they would obtain. And he starts speaking their language. He says, so I don't run as someone who's running aimlessly, and I don't box as someone who's just randomly punching the air. I live my spiritual life like an athletic race, and I have discipline because one day I'm going to go before the Father and he is going, or Jesus Christ himself and he is going to either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And what Paul does for us as uh, you know, the, the greatest apostle in most practical ways that's ever lived is he says in verse 27, he says, I discipline my body, and he's talking spiritually obviously, and I keep it under control because the last thing that I would want to do is preach to you a gospel that I don't live out myself because that would make me a massive hypocrite accountable to the Lord. And so he says, I need these disciplines and you need these disciplines as well. And what he's really saying is very simple. It's what the church is always criticized for. He's saying, I'm gonna practice what I preach. He says to the Philippian church, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so if it's important for Paul, it should be important for us. But here here are the questions we're gonna answer, just a few of them. The first one is this. What do we need to know about spiritual discipline? What do we need to know about spiritual discipline? And here's the bonus, for $10, you can get all these ideas locked in stone because the opener is heavily reliant on this literature. So what do we need to know about spiritual discipline? Number one, all of us, this is the theology of it, all of us start at a disadvantage. Christianity, on a theological level, on, a, on a, just a baseline level, puts all of us on the exact same playing field that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's one perfect, his name is Jesus, and then there's all of us. We're in this room, we're online, we'll be at the next service. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. Spiritually, we all start with the same equal disadvantage. This would be a distinguisher between sports and our spiritual lives. I mean, there's some people that work hard. I mean, Steph Curry's amazing, right? He's just this little guy who can shoot the lights out and from the time he was little, he was following his dad, Dell around in the NBA, 
and he was shooting half-court shots. And so he has this skill set that he's developed, and everyone who's great has that. But there's also this thing called genetics that aren't fair. You walk into a room, and you shake Shaquille O'Neal's hand, and you realize your hand is the size of a grape. It's not fair. And life's typically not fair, but there are certain people. Uh, Michael Phelps is a great, great swimmer, but look at his body. It's like, it's like perfect for swimming. He can jump rope with his arms. But when it comes to the spiritual things in life, all of us are equally disadvantaged. That sounds almost a bit uh, sad, but that, that's actually, for me, I don't know, depending on your personality, that's very encouraging. And it's like, oh, well, you're just as messed up as me. But we all have the same vantage point of starting in the same place. And it's when we practice these spiritual disciplines that the Bible lays out for us, that's when we grow spiritually. And so the first thing is that idea. All of us start at the same disadvantage. Here's the second thing you need to know about spiritual discipline. Discipline is the exception, not the rule. And so if you, if you were just to interview a room full of people and start talking about, you know, is this an integral part of your life or is that an integral part of your life, what you would find over and over again, because Barna has loved to research these topics, is that most people don't practice these things. And we've said these things a lot in church, but just to bring everyone on the same page about church attendance in and of itself, right now in Aberdeen, uh, there are about three to 5,000 people doing what you're doing, and around 30,000 people plus, if you look at outside communities that are not in church right now, because it's not a priority in their life. Discipline is the exception and not the rule. There was this famous commercial, um, I don't know how long ago it was, but I told our leadership team this morning as we prayed for everyone, I said that that's definitely true at New Life. Like I love how many people were here for Easter, but I'm fully aware that it won't be that number this week. I said New Life has kind of become like Dos Equis beer. Are you familiar? No one? Wow, we are already so far along, right? Do you guys remember that commercial and it's that foreign guy and he says, I don't normally drink beer. Is that Dos Equis? Am I tracking right or am I culturally irrelevant? I don't normally drink beer, but when I do, I drink, is it Dos Equis? It's not Corona or something like that. Okay. That's kind of become new life. I don't normally go to church, but when I do, it's Easter. No, no, when I do, when I do, when I do, it's new life. There, there are a lot of people. I love to hang out at the Y and just be like, hey, hey, I'm like the talker guy that doesn't lift too much. Everyone is, I'm like everyone's pastor. And I'm going, I don't, I don't ever remember you there, but you call me pastor. And so that, that's, discipline is the exception and not the rule. Write this one down. Here's another one. Discipline requires specific training. Specific training. Paul says, train yourselves. We're going to get to that in a little while. Train yourselves for godliness. The word train comes from the Greek word. You'll get about three Greek words from me a year, so write it down. It comes from the Greek word gumnos, which means naked. It's in the book, and I thought, well, that's too good not to talk about, okay? It comes from the Greek word naked, and so Greek athletes were so incredibly competitive. They took competition so seriously that they compete without any clothes on so that they had every absolute advantage possible. They had nothing weighing them down or holding them back. And Paul is saying, train yourselves, and the, and the word train is that same word. Train yourselves for godliness. Have every spiritual advantage possible. Have some sweat equity 
Use the gym, not as social hour, but be focused and have direct energy. 1 Timothy 4.10 says this. He uses this word to toil in your faith and to train in your faith. And the word toil translates agonize to this end in your faith. Do strenuous work. Prepare yourselves for that mountaintop view where you will go where most will not go because discipline in Paul's time too was the exception and not the rule so that you can, what he says, win the prize. I think it's in Hebrews, we'll get to that too, where he talks about this idea of getting rid of those things that have nothing to do with godliness in your life. And he uses this same language. He says, get rid of every association of sin, every habit of sin, every tendency that impedes godliness. And so the question when you are spiritually disciplined, uh, Hebrews 12, 1, I'm going to read it to you. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great of a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. And so when we're letting things go, when we're taking this baggage that's been with us, even generationally, to the cross of Christ, and we're putting it before Christ, what we're doing when we're taking this weight off is we're making a clear statement to God. We are saying, I am going to not worry about all those things that I can still do as a Christian, and there's this fence that we've talked about before in church. And how do you know that you're growing in your faith when you stop looking at your spiritual life as how close can I get to that fence where here's right and here's wrong and I just want to inch my way up to the fence and get as close to the fence as possible and still call myself a Christian. Paul is saying take those things that are even lukewarm and get rid of them from your life because the goal of the Christian life is not to get so close to the fence mark of sin in your life where you have, sit, you have fence marks imprinted on your face. The goal of the Christian life is to let go of these things because they're bondage in your life. This is where we're going with this idea of spiritual discipline. Here's one more. What is spiritual discipline? This one's big. This one, to me, is profound. Discipline is not legalism. We're gonna hit this right at the top because the pushback on a sermon series like this or literature like this, and I have experienced this. You wanna experience legalism? Go to a Pentecostal Bible college in the South the first two years out of high school as a Presbyterian in the 90s. Legalism was rampant, rampant. The clothes that you wear, the curfews that you obtain to, there is this thin line, and like Pentecostals, they're, they're child's play. I mean, Baptists, whole nother level, right? Who in here has ever grown up in some legalism? It stinks, doesn't it? It's bondage, right? And so on one hand, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. On one hand, you can be legalistic and you can have all of these rules upon rules upon rules where you can puff yourself up and feel like I'm a Christian and nobody else is a Christian. And so we're all going to move to our own colony and never talk to anyone that has a tattoo or something like that ever again, right? I mean, there's that crowd. And then there's this whole new crowd that's become way more relevant in culture that's saying, I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, don't judge me. And so you have legalism uh, combating against grace abuse. And so as we start this thing off, you need to hear this. Discipline is not legalism. In fact, it's the opposite of legalism. Let me, let me just play this out for you. It's in the literature, and I'm going to tell you the difference, and you can write it down. The difference between discipline and legalism 
is motivation. I'll say that one more time. The difference, this can probably save a few emails, is new life going hardcore, ultra-conservative, legalistic, where, you know, you wear the head covering in church. Uh, I see guys wearing hats, but no. Okay, so save you the email. Discipline is not legalism. We are not trying to browbeat you and saying you have to live exactly like this. The difference between legalism and discipline is all in the motivation of the behavior. And so let me define it. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. Legalist heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. And here's what I love. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God. I love Jesus and I want to please him with my lifestyle. You see the difference in that? That, that? To me, you're going, well, okay, duh, let's move on. For me, look at me. For me, that was just like, phew. That's a profound difference. Discipline says, I'm going to earn my way to God and be better than everyone else. Or legalist says, I'm going to earn my way to God and be better than everyone else. Disciplined heart says, I love Jesus. And so Paul fought legalism, bare-knuckled, across Asia Minor. He fought it, and yet he preaches this gospel, gospel of being spiritually disciplined. Discipline is not legalism. Here's question number two that we're going to answer this morning. What stands in the way of discipline? What stands in the way of it? And just a heads up, if you've been coming to New Life for a while, you're already ready for this. This one's going to be offensive to some of us. What stands in the way? Write it down. Men, write it down. Number one, selfishness. Selfishness stands in the way of spiritual discipline. It goes back to that Andy Stanley quote. We preached on this a couple years ago in the book of Judges. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Don't what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. When it comes to what we're going to get to in a couple weeks, the discipline of marriage, I have never had a counseling session with a married couple when they come because they're struggling with something. And this is true in my own marriage, for sure. I have never had a marriage counseling session where there are issues, and because it's marriage, there's issues, right? Where at some level there hasn't been this undergirding reality of selfishness. At the heart of selfishness is an attitude of self-loathing and a mindset that loves to justify every self-serving behavior that is displayed in the marriage covenant. And so why, why is there a lack of spiritual discipline in my life? Selfishness. Number two, they just kind of get a little more offensive each time I go through one, right? The second one, this is me, okay? I, I actually added to the book because I thought, I don't know if he gets it, all right? So I added to the book. The second one in my own life is just simple, just laziness. Laziness defined by in my life, not yours, but in my life as I know what I'm supposed to do and I just don't want to do it. I know I'm supposed to have my devotional time with the Lord, but hey, tomorrow looks better than today. If the reason you're not being spiritually disciplined or the best excuse that you can come up with as to why you're not doing these things that God has called you to do, and, and you, you know, you're walking through life and you're going, well, you know, I'm just really busy and my kids, they're in everything. I mean, that's the best thing that you can come up with. There's a good chance that you look a lot like me at different points in my life where I'm just being lazy and creating excuses not to serve the Lord the way he's called me to serve him. And so we deal with this issue of laziness. Here's what I found about laziness in my own life. I have never been lazy about the things that are closest to my heart. I, I need some affirmation. You're just staring at me, and there's a lot of you. True? 
Go lazy. Lazy on three. I have never been lazy about the things closest to my heart. I have never been lazy about gaining a pound on a diet with a guy that I work out with. It was close to my heart. I was good at eating. So I did it a lot this week. It was Easter. I have always made time for thrift shopping. Greg has always been there to thrift shop with me. Never has he said, let's go to Ron Colley nearly noon. I'm, I'm busy. No, I will make time. I got this whole outfit at Ron Colley nearly new. Quit, don't shop there. Don't take my deals. They're like, I see it. I won't, right? I have always made time for that. I've always made time for good basketball. Not bad basketball. I might have, if I thought it's bad basketball, I might have told you I'm busy. I have never made, not made time for good basketball with people that I know it's going to just be a fun time with. I have always made time for good, to, good food. In the last five years, as Ann and I have really grown into like this now 20-year marriage, I have always made time for her. I'm not, I'm, that's not righteous to me. I just want to. She's busy. I'm busy. I love hanging out with her. And there's all sorts of other things that I don't want to do that all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, I'm busy. There are so many people that come up to me and they're like, you must be so busy. I love that. I'm kind of busy. I'm not as busy as you might think. I'm pretty busy, but I always have time for those things that I want to do. Let's up the ante. Let's get more offensive and get it out of the way. What stands in the way of spiritual discipline? Barna has gone crazy with this. Weak leadership. Weak leadership. Undeniable. Cold, hard truth. Statistically proven, research-driven, men are much less spiritually inclined and much less spiritually disciplined than women. Certain matrix to define it. Women are more likely to believe in God. Women are more likely to find religion important. Women, unfortunately, are more likely to attend church. Women are more likely to serve in church. Women are more likely to attend Bible studies, participate in prayer meetings than men. And here's what's so, this, this is in the literature. This is interesting to me. I had no idea. Men are more likely to purchase a Bible. Praise God. Go men, right? And now, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. They are less likely to read it. <laughs> they are less likely to, they're like, oh, let me go buy that Bible. And then that's all, all it goes because they like their tasks, but they don't like their discipline. Much less likely to read it. Women buy more Christian books than men year after year after year. In Christian women today, the most read articles online are the spiritual development of husbands. This is literature for women, and they're going, how can I rack my brain and somehow infuse my will on a man? And I'm just telling you, if you're single, it's probably not going to work. It's probably not going to work. And if it does work, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not your manipulation. That's why it is the second most important decision you will ever make is who you're married. 62% of women in America believe religion can solve today's problems. 52% of men in America believe the same. This is old literature. The stats have gotten worse. Married women who attend church services do so about 25% of the time without their husbands. And so it stands in the way of the disciplined family, the disciplined life. Here's another one, strongholds. If there's something in your life you're not willing to give up, you are going to, by definition of the fact that you're going to do what you want to do, what's important to you, you're going to put that on a pedestal and you're going to let everything else fall, including those spiritual disciplines that God's called you to. We used to do this thing. My first job was telling high school kids not to do drugs. It was fun. It just didn't pay any money. And I was in the school system and I'd tell kids not to do drugs and we'd have these classes on it once they do drugs 
where they wouldn't go on probation or they'd get out of court if they listened to me talk about not doing drugs for a few hours. And so they would listen to me. At least they acted like they were listening to me. And then, and then when, in our talk, there was always this balloon analogy that we would do to try to keep kids off of drugs. And we'd get about five balloons and we'd say, hey, here's your task. You need to keep all of these balloons in the air. And they were pretty good at it. It was a group in a circle. And then we would do it again and we'd take a sixth balloon and it would be like blue or something like that. And we'd say, hey, none of these balloons can fall to the ground. But this blue balloon, this one takes the cake under no circumstance, although they all have to stay in the air, can this balloon hit the ground in any way? What happened? What happened to the blue balloon? It would stay in the air. What happened to the other five? They all fell. They all fell. That's a stronghold in your life. When you have something that you're addicted to, that you're unwilling to surrender, it will cause so much of your emotional energy to go to it that all these things that God's called you to will lay by the wayside. Everyone who's a recovering addict can tell you that that is very much accurate. That's a stronghold in your life. Here's the last question. Why is spiritual discipline so important? This will go fast. Number one, it shapes, it shapes our present, write it down, it shapes our present and our future. Here's the scripture, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. Paul says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. And here's the big word, underline it, because that's the definition. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present, underline it, for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil, that's the word toil I was talking about, and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is in the Savior, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so it takes our present and it shapes it and it molds it and it takes our future, our legacy of the things that we did in this life, the future days that you have left that you don't even know how many heartbeats you have. And it shapes that as well. And then in eternity, when the Bible says you're going to meet Jesus and you're going to go before him, it's going to shape that as well with these ideas of like crowns in heaven and these awards that you're given like a, like a racer running the race, winning the prize. It's going to take today, and it's going to shape it. It's going to take the future, and it's going to shape it. It's going to take your family, and it has the capacity to shape it and to transform it. I was talking to Greg. I talk to him a lot. He's all around here every day. What's going on in youth ministry? He will tell you verbatim, there are kids that thrive, and they tend to be the kids that have leaders in their homes and moms that love Jesus and families that are actually doing what they say they're going to do and living consistent lives in the same direction, not just saying the right thing, but saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And that reality transforms families. And, and the families who come to church and go, man, I'm at the bottom of the ninth. I do not know what to do with this kid. It's not that it won't help to send them to youth group and get them in church. Obviously, Jesus transforms, but it is way, way, way more difficult. These spiritual, these spiritual disciplines have the capacity to transform families. There, there's this saying, I'm going to start wrapping up. There's this saying I want to break down. I had this epiphany like six months ago, so I tell it to a circle of people who will listen, mainly my own kids. 
um, and their friends. I, I had this epiphany just watching teenage boys. Uh, there, there's this cliche out there that's kind of true, that's fairly true, but not as true as what people aren't saying. When it comes to transforming families, there, there's this cliche. If you want to know what a girl's going to be like, look at what? Her mom, okay? That's true, but here's where I'd push back. I think it's more true. If you want to know what a guy is going to be like, outside of the gospel, right? I, if there's, there's no trajectory for change. If you want to know what a guy is going to be like, look to the father. Here, here's why I would say to you that's more accurate. Because in my experience working with teenage guys, they tend to be model driven in the sense that uh, it's kind of like a show me. We don't communicate about all of our feelings. And it's an apprenticeship type of relationship. And so because they're not real communicative all the time, and dads especially don't say everything they're feeling, they have these young boys that are growing up in the nest and just watching dad and never really analyzing why they're doing what they're doing on the same level that women who communicate at a greater level on average than men are doing. And because they don't have that communication, they're just watching, observing, learning, and mimicking the man. How many guys do you know, it's like they're the spitting image of their old man. And so when the dad takes this role of leadership seriously, it has the capacity to have a snowball domino effect to the next generation. Spiritual discipline transforms family. It transforms churches. And here's the last one. It brings freedom. Here's the good news. It brings freedom. Steph Curry is interviewed. And everyone wants to know why he's so great. Everyone wants to know why he can, like a toddler, have this pacifier hanging out of his mouth when he shoots as if he's not even worried. Have you guys ever noticed that about Curry? It's like he's cocky, probably because he is. And he doesn't seem to be nervous on any real level. And so he's interviewed about that. How are you able to just go in the game and night after night shoot the way you do? And it's like it just comes effortless to you. And everyone watching you is amazed. And his response is, I feel, I feel so freed because I'm practicing this thing so many times that by the time I get to the game, it's like second nature. It's like second nature. That's us. That's our faith that we live out. Churchill, painstaking, painstaking preparation, gets to the point where it seems seamless, but it's anything but seamless. Even his dramatic pauses, and I'll give you one. Are you ready? Right? Even his dramatic pauses are planned and manipulated. He just does it so many times that by the time he gets to give the stump speech, it's effortless. And so that is what liberates them on the field uh, or whatever the capacity, whether it's drawing art or painting or molding or sculpting or giving speeches, what liberates great athletes to be free on the field, what liberates good people to be excellent in their craft is training, training, training. And so there's freedom. There's freedom in that reality. There's freedom in it. And so as we walk in this next step of 
going through some literature and covering these topics. I want to just encourage you with that, that this is kind of a hard message where it's like, this is why we're not like this, and that's why we're not like this, and this is why we don't do what we're supposed to do. It, my nature is kind of like a coaching type of motivational mentality. I can go there all day long. But I want to close with a different perspective. That when we practice what we preach and we live in this type of reality where we're serving Christ in this way, it's not something where we're beating each other up and trying harder than the next guy to be more spiritual or the next girl to be more spiritual. We are saying, I am so sick of the past defining my future. I am so sick of doing the same things and expecting different results. I am committed to disciplines of a godly life because I want spiritual freedom and this approach is not working. The gospel The cross, the resurrection, is all about freedom in Christ. In Hebrews, the writer talks about these things in life, this godlessness weighing us down like a weight on our chest. And when we live this life that exalts Christ, we experience this freedom. And our challenge in the weeks to come is just very simple. Let's experience freedom together in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone. And we would ask that you would use this time to transform us as a church, to make us more into your image, and to be more spiritually disciplined in our lives. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Next week, we're talking about purity. Bring your friends, your family, anyone you think needs to hear it. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.